Welcome back to another episode of the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition's podcast, AJCN in Press. I'm here today with Georgia Tomova and Peter Tennant. Do you guys want to introduce yourselves? Um, hi, everyone. I'm Georgia Tomova. I'm currently a PhD student at the University of Leeds in the UK at the Alan Turing Institute, um, which is UK's National Institute for Data Science and Artificial Intelligence. I have a, my background is in nutrition. I have a degree in nutrition, after which I did a master's degree in health data analytics, which is where I got really interested in causal inference and what led me to actually uh, do the PhD in causal data science. Hi, yep. So I'm Peter Tennant and I'm something called a university academic fellow in health data science, whatever that means. Um, my background is very much in sort of traditional epidemiology. Um, and then a few years ago, um, when I moved to the University of Leeds, which is where I am at the moment, um, I became very interested in causal inference methods. And so my interest has kind of become about how to uh, use causal inference uh, methods, these new methods in kind of practice. Awesome. Well, welcome onto the podcast. Uh, true AJCN Impress podcast stands will remember that we had Yuhan Chu on to talk about causal inference methods and target trials. So this will hopefully not be a completely novel phrase, but I wanted to mention real quick that the title of this work, though, is Adjustment for Energy Intake in Nutritional Research, a Causal Inference Perspective, which is why we're talking about causal inference. But this is a bit of a wonky paper in a good way. Uh, about a topic that I think we all maybe take for granted a little bit or, or don't think about quite deeply enough in nutrition research about how do you adjust for total energy intake. So do you want to kind of elaborate for folks, why do we adjust for total energy intake in, in nutrition epi research and uh, what kind of led you to undertake this paper? Yeah, sure. Well, there are a few reasons why you would want to adjust for energy intake in general. Um, you would you might want to emulate an experimental setting, right? So this is where you you would want um, the isocaloric um, equivalent equivalent, yeah, yeah of uh, what you would have in a trial, for example. And uh, the another reason is, for example, you might want to adjust for all of these differences in physiological factors, you know, even psychological, cultural, like there's so many things that affect what you eat, how much of it, how much of it you eat and what proportions, you know, overall diet. And many of these things are actually something that we cannot measure accurately. Sometimes we don't even know exactly. And so, uh, in general, it has been proposed and suggested that sometimes the overall energy intake is the best available proxy of all of these other factors that we either don't know or you cannot measure. And um, we initially, so I initially became interested in this project as a master's student. So Peter, I think we forgot to mention he's my PhD supervisor, actually. Oh, yes. And so, that. yeah. And then, 
um, and he was uh, one of my lecturers during my master's degree. And and so I had to choose this final project, and uh, one of the projects was uh, about showing that adjusting for total energy as opposed to other or remaining energy changes the estimate and this was what the whole project was was meant to be it wasn't you know the whole story about the four methods came later on and so because of my background in nutrition i was uh encouraged uh to very strongly encouraged strongly encouraged to pick this project and um so i worked on this during my master's degree but then uh, we just saw the complexity of it um and i decided to continue working on it when i started my phd and this is how it evolved and now it's a paper <laughs> an ADCM paper so congratulations yeah. on that it's not Thank a bad you. way to round out that the is PhD. my that is my first ever first author paper so yeah it's a bit of a quite, quite happy <laughs> It's a bit of a nice way to start things, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> it's a little bit of a flex, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a, that's a great uh, kind of background. I think that we, as I kind of alluded to before, uh, we don't think a lot about adjusting for energy intake as someone on the more experimental sciences side. I'm just like, you know, always thinking about having, you know, we don't have a placebo in nutrition for most of our macronutrient or food exposures. So we want to have some sort of isocaloric comparator and, whatever either eucaloric or hypocaloric or hypercaloric context that we're looking at. And then when you come to the epi world, you're just kind of like, well, one, what, what's their weight status? How do you kind of adjust? You have no idea their weight trajectory half the times and you have, you're dealing with self-reported data, which is subject to error. And, you know, I just sort of like, you just adjust for energy intake. But I think this paper really, helps you to adjust for energy intake so that you can look at these sort of food or macronutrient specific effects. And I think that that's sort of the way it gets pitched and the way it gets taught. I know that in some of my dietetics coursework, that was sort of, it was presented that way. And uh, I'm sure to the nutritional epidemiologists, some of the background of this paper isn't quite so new, but I knew of about two ways people typically adjust for energy intake, but y'all lay out four different approaches. Can you kind of dive into that a little bit and, and some of the different ways that you can adjust for energy intake in, in, in a model? Yeah, well, the first, probably the most common approach, and probably that's why it's called the standard model, is adjustment for total energy intake. And actually, I think, even though that's the most common, I think this is where we actually became really interested in it, because it is well known in some circles that this changes the model to a substitution model. So essentially it's changing the estimate. But we noticed that that often people don't realize that this is happening. And so they think, you know, we'll just adjust for total energy and this will, you know, we've we've accounted for the, the differences in energy intake. And they don't, some of the time, if not, I mean, I don't want to say most of the time, but often. <laughs> There's a large number of people yeah. who, um, who, who who don't formally explain yeah. why they've made that decision yeah. as opposed and to so, other decisions. Yeah. And so what happens is they accidentally um, change their research question, their estimate, and by adjusting for total energy, they're estimating a substitution effect. And so this is not what... Um, people intend to do 
but um, what ends up happening. And so... Can you explain the substitution effect, like what that means for Yeah, folks? so a substitution effect is, for example, like in the paper, for example, your if your exposure is sugars, non-milk extrinsic sugars or whatever else you can think of. Um, so once you've adjusted for total energy intake, um, you can think of it as you fixed energy intake. So it's constant, it, it can no longer vary. So if you were interested in um, changing the amount of sugars you're consuming, then if, say, you increase sugars, your fixed total energy can no longer vary. So if you increase sugars, then you have to decrease some of the other nutrients because otherwise it's an impossible, you know, you, you would be estimating something impossible in the real world. And so this is what is meant by the substitution effect. Um and this Obviously, is sort of like a, a summed, it's comparing it to the substitution as like a summed average of everything else in yes. the diet, yeah. right? And yeah. yeah, this is one of the key things is that when you've adjusted for total, for example, you're increasing the intake of sugars and decreasing on average the intake of everything else. Yeah, this is and, something I find frustrating about a lot of nutrition yeah. epi that compares Q4 of some exposure to Q1 of the exposure and then adjust for total energy intake. And it's like, well, thank you. If you, if you're eating more or less red meat, the effect estimate is probably going to depend on what you eat more or less of in yep. response. And, yeah. and sort of just the comparing it to the average of the background diet is, is it this nebulous kind of unquantified thing that uh, is yeah, very we, antithetical to nutritional thinking in my mind? Uh, absolutely. And, and actually, that's where my angle and interest in this study really came from, um, is that because this standard model approach, which George just spoke about, is used so often, but it isn't realized that you're creating these strange substitutions where you're, you're now saying, you know, increased amount of red meat instead of a balanced average of everything else. Um, well, is that really what you it's wanted very to estimate? Informative. Uh, it's not a very informative substitution because, like, what can you do with this information? It's not a specific. You know, it almost assumes that the the everything else doesn't affect the outcome. Yes, in a yeah. sense, it's like yes. that might be a good way to answer. Does dietary sources of heme iron, which you know, red meat is the major primary contributor of, like influence the outcome independent of everything else <laughs> yeah because uh, yeah. there's all those other things don't have heme iron source but i think we all know like diet most of the other components of the diet can influence a lot of the outcomes that we're thinking about yeah so we thought there were i thought there were just two models have to be honest um i thought there was the, the standard <laughs> model approach where you were just for total energy and then the other approach which i think we're is just the, with the, the 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 we're just for all other energy well it has uh it, the most common name is the energy partition yes. or decomposition model, but the specific version of it that we're looking at in this paper is when all of the other components, so all of the other or remaining energies combined in this variable, yes. that's usually other. called other or, or remaining, or energy. remaining whatever people want to call it. And um, they look like they're the same. Yeah. Total we, energy, remaining energy, they can't be that different. We're using this... Um, sort of version of the energy partition model because the the one in which you include all components which we do use later for the all components model is usually used in the context of substitution modeling which is not really the focus of this paper although it is something that it, we are interested in and, working and it's also right what now. people most commonly do 
you yeah. know, back to that first question, why do people adjust for overall energy? There's all these different reasons. Some of it's about confounding and the two standard methods, Steve, are just for total energy or yeah. they're just for remaining energy. Yeah. And, and I think it's just not appreciated that these are very, very different things. As we've just said, total energy creates this substitution effect. Remaining energy, in a sense, clamps down the rest of the diet and just tries to say, you know, if your diet, if your overall calorific intake for everything else was the same, what is the effect of adding this specific part of the diet only? Yeah. Um, and they're very, very different questions. And they can literally have opposite signs. Yeah. You know, one, one can be, you know, contribute positively towards the outcome and one can put, contribute in the other direction. So, you know, from, my, from, from that master's project where the original idea was just show just that it to changes show, the estimate. Yeah, that, that, <laughs> you get really different answers <laughs> and hope that, that, that people out there kind of go, oh, that's quite useful. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but then we discovered yeah. there was a much larger history going on and many, many different adjustments. Yeah, sets. and I think what dem- really demonstrates that this distinction between the two types of energy that you can adjust for, that it's not well like appreciated enough and not well understood is that people very rarely justify why they are just for total or why they are just for remaining. Um, and this is something that we want to explain in the paper as well, that it's really important when you make any adjustment to justify your decision because you, you know, show the sort of explain the decision process behind it and like, um, Yeah. Yeah, well, well, you know, what what is it you want to know? I mean, yeah. you, you what mentioned is the research question? There was a the, you know previous podcast on the target trial framework. It's sort of you know we we don't go into that in this particular paper, but it's the same kind of idea. If you were conducting an experiment, what would you be wanting to know? And it's it should be from that you get yeah. your model, as opposed to let's do our model and then try and interpret put it. all variables in a model and <laughs> yes. see what happens. Well, yeah, I told you guys before we started the podcast, but as I as I read through all of these approaches, I spent like 10, 15 minutes trying to say, okay, this energy adjustment model would re- correlate with this trial design and this specific question that you're asking. And I think the, the paper, whether you intended to write a paper that's going to be downloaded and handed out in every nutrition epi master's class, I don't know, but I think that's what's going to happen. And I, I think that it will be really, it's very didactic and helpful in kind of laying this all out in one space. I think it's across the nutrition literature, these concepts probably exist. Um, but in one unit was really helpful for me as a, a non-epidemiologist to say, okay, how do these different approaches affect the actual question that you're asking? And if I were to design a trial to ask that question, which one correlates with which trial design? Well, that's kind of where your PhD has gone. In that, that you started out yeah. as a master's project student and now a lot of your PhD is focused on exactly that. How can we try and explain um, some of these ideas more formally? How can we, we get yeah. people to be thinking about the causal questions they're asking? Yeah, and I think another important point is that sometimes what I've seen in the literature is, for example, people might be aware of, say, the four most common methods for energy adjustment. And what they go on to do is just use the four use all four and just say with the first approach, this was the result with the second. And so, you know, it's, 
that's why I think we're trying to show that it's really important to think about the research question. So what is it that you want to estimate and then pick the one correct approach to do it as opposed to just try every single approach and say with this one, it was significant (laughs) and with this one, it wasn't. And so even though, you know, even when there is understanding of the different approaches and in these cases, people also know how to interpret them. But what's missing is that that there's this understanding that, you know, you choose the adjustment strategy based on your specific research question. Because you would never, you know, you would have, say, a trial. Um, you would want to estimate something specific in, you should, a, in you an should experiment. Know what you want to know in when an you experimental start trial. setting or a trial. You don't just run, you know, all possible trials and then... Um, I realise we've yeah. not mentioned the last two models we've, we've, yeah. we've given... We've provided plenty of detail, but we've not mentioned those last two. Yeah. <laughs> Do you want me to? Have a, I'll I'll start with the, my favourite, the residual uh, model. Okay. Um, I'm not going to go into the details because it's a little bit mathematical. I'll just say it is exactly the same as the standard model. <laughs> so there is a, this third model. Um, literally, will just give you the same answer. So it's not really another model, but it's it's out there. It has a name. Yeah. Um, and it, it's it, more complicated. It, you know, it, it, it's yeah. It's, it's you, you not, just break the model into two steps rather than. The, the I don't one think step. it's that like mad heavy. I think no, it's not. You no. can explain. Oh, right. Some people might be. Interested. Shall I try? Yeah. Oh dear. Um, so yeah, I mean, uh, you you you, you essentially sick. run. Oh dear, she's she's put me on a spot now. You essentially run the the regression twice, um, and you 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 sort of ask what what are the parts of the variable that are not explained by. Um, total energy first, and then you use those remaining parts, the residuals, um, in the next regression model. But actually, when you run a regression and adjust for total, it's doing exactly the same thing. So it, it, it's it's quite interesting. It's supposed to, what people say is it gives you, you know, I'm getting very, very technical and very, very uh, wonky <laughs> now, but uh, it's supposed to give you better kind of power. S- power, supposed to give you tighter confidence intervals. But that's actually an artifact of having having broken the model in half and the the statistics doesn't know that you're using you're, you're using predicted values the second time round rather than true values so really it, it is a, exactly the same model so that's that's the good old residual model yeah it's a little redundancy um, you know never hurts yeah. <laughs> well the the good thing is that you know it works the same way as the standard <laughs> model so if you wanted the relative causal effects you, know, you, can, you can use the residual model it's just that there's actually no benefit to it but what about what about my you know my personal the favorite nutrient the density nutrient density model. model yeah that was probably the most sort of complex and difficult to explore and explain and understand so the nutrient density model is the one in which you add total energy as a denominator to say your exposure so what you're doing is you're turning it into a percentage of energy intake which makes sense like which makes sense because it's percentages, yeah. yeah percentages of energy intake are really sort of i think useful because that's how many dietary guidelines are formulated and it's and it, and it's also sometimes more intuitive because uh, of how you think about, yeah. you know, five percent. It's, in- it's inherently yeah. constrained yeah. on its own. You're not going to get yeah. over a hundred percent. Just happens yeah. to be absolute rubbish. 
And so, <laughs> well, <laughs> no, so uh, it is useful from the sort of practical perspective and dietary guidelines, for example. Well, in theory. I mean, in the, yeah, in the UK at least, we have the um, sugar tax. So yeah. the, you know. Well, uh, a lot of, certainly a lot of guidelines are produced in this exact form, you know, try and reduce your, I can't remember a specific guideline, but try and reduce your intake replace, of... Replace saturated of, fats with Yeah, down to 5% yeah. or something like this. Well, yeah, well, non-milk extrinsic sugar should be no more than 5% yeah. of your energy intake. So I think that's one of the but, but, but one of the examples. Th- this is sort of, one, again, one of those esoteric methodological quirks, um, is that whilst it seems to make perfect sense on the surface to look at percentages that actually when you do a when you do these models where you've actually created a what we call a composite variable so um you know sugar divided by total it, essentially a ratio variable yeah, in this case it, it doesn't give you what you think it does you you actually end up a, a, with estimating a bizarre joint effect of sugar on the top or whatever your your, your numerator is and then one over your denominator so you get a, a, a you actually conflating the two two separate causal effects yeah. one of the exposure and one of one over total energy so not even total energy but one over and and this is really not something you know kind of moving a bit further away from intuitive at yeah. this point yeah uh, <laughs> we got a good review on this you know that sort of said well we think we know what it means um and we said you're willing to you, you know you're welcome to explain it but uh, I think it's, um, well, ratio variables on their own, you know, they're pretty, like, you just transform it into a percentage in this case. But the problem is once you actually use ratios in a regression, and it's been, you know, described and discussed many years ago. What year was it? Yeah, it's uh, one of my favorites, this. Uh, so, you know, just in case you haven't heard of him, there's this guy, uh, Pearson. Um, he wrote this article in 1896 um, that said, you know, ratio don't don't analyze ratio variables. You end up with these artifacts. Spurious. Um, and, and then there was someone else who who kind of warned about it again. 1940 something. It was called Fisher. Um, you know, he more or less said the same. And yet, and, of, and actually, of Pearson and Fisher Incorporated. Yeah, yes, yes. exactly. Yeah. yeah, and 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 yet, you know, you see, it, this is an example of where ratios continue to be used. And so this is another, you know, element of my personal interest is trying these are old messages, but they're completely lost in the literature and and we've sort of forgotten about them. And so this paper is partly, you know, in a sense, this ended up being a side aim, try and remind people of the dangers of this kind of modeling approach. So that fourth modeling approach where you create these composites, it just isn't going to give you what you think it does, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, and I think the you know Pearson and Fisher the I think although this is available in the literature, how many people actually sit down to read like Pearson from eighteen? It's not a it's not a riveting bedtime read. I have to yeah, say. Yeah, and it's, so I'm sure he didn't have too many simulation models that he no, graphed no. in R. <laughs> no, yeah, no, it was and all so, there's not nice lot of maths in there. Um, well, so that so those the proportional models or it's like percentage of calories, those are quite commonly used, particularly in, in the substance, like the specific substitution modeling, 
where you say, yeah. okay, if you were to replace 5% of calories and saturated fat with PUFA, you would get XYZ benefits. And so what you're saying is, is some of the work that you've done suggests that there are some, some problems in doing that. You can still estimate it. So that's a very valid question to try and approach. But but that's not but that modeling approach, you know, the, which it seems so obvious, it seems like it should be the right way of doing it. It doesn't actually give it you because it what you end up with is this terrible distortion of the inverse of the effect of total energy because it's yeah. sort of sitting on the bottom. Yeah, um, that's yeah. Not, I mean, I don't think that's totally unintuitive. I always make a joke with people that the easiest way to eat less than 5% of your calories from free sugars is to eat more calories from other yes. sources. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to dilute out the that's, free sugars. That's always been my strategy. Is that not the, yeah. the general public health strategy? <laughs> but, I, you know, sometimes these things seem so intuitive and, like, they are the correct approach. And, and this is where simulations become really useful because you can have a really, really simple simulation in which you just have some variables a b c and just include some denominator and this it radically changes your results and we we see the same with total energy intake um and especially so um in our results uh, first we present all of the coefficients from a simulation without any confounding so we just simulate a world in which confounding doesn't exist so um and all the results that you see, if there's any bias, that this is only because of the specific modeling strategies, strategy used. Um, and so we see with the nutrient density model, so with the ratio variables, that they actually perform probably the worst mm. out of all of them. It's interesting to see that... Um, when you say the worst, the, is it is it they... They As in over, far, furthest, furthest away from the truth, yeah. regardless of whether it's under or over, just that the size of bias is large. It's huge, yeah. I mean, it, it, the exact bias you see in our simulation reflects the exact simulation we were doing, in a sense. But, you know, if you were looking yeah. at a more, we looked at sugar as our main kind of demonstrative exposure, yeah. which is obviously generally, we, you know, we kind of imagined that that would be worse on the outcome but depending on what you looked at you the artifact could point in all kinds of different directions yeah. it just it sways wildly depending on your exact question but what well, i think what everybody wants to know is how do we make sugar look good i wanted to well, that's yeah. my health. <laughs> <laughs> no, no that's a good uh, yeah that's a good question and and uh, the good news is in a sense i mean it, this is where this is where we would encourage you know dive into the paper there are the we're trying to raise like here are some problems of traditional modeling strategies but none of them are dead ends. It's not, you know, so if you want to, if you want to ask the question, uh, you know, proportion of diet um, uh, to make that kind of recommendation about, you know, percentage of diet that's sugar, then you can. It's just, you know, don't use some of, don't use the nutrient density model. That would be a simple headline message. Use, you know, one of the other methods is better. We obviously come up with a, or we, we describe a particular model at, approach that is pretty robust in general um, to a lot of the problems we we study um, but yeah none of these problems are unsolvable that's the good news well there's some solutions to the if you are interested in percentages of energy intake which many nutritionists would be one solution would be to just model it as a non-ratio yeah and then and you just divide then... at the end 
and then in the end present it as a percentage of energy intake. You don't need to, you know, to to present a result or a nutrient intake as a proportion of energy intake. You don't necessarily need to model it as such. And the problems with ratios is when you include them in the regression or correlation. Yeah. On their own, there's nothing inherently wrong with them because that's how you get to a percentage. But it, these spurious associations appear when you analyze them in something like a regression model, which is, you know, all these things that Pearson and Fisher have talked yeah. about. And we're trying to sort of translate into a more modern, uh, accessible. accessible way. I mean, I, I don't have a background in maths. So for, for me, it's much easier to describe these things in a more in a non-matsy, non-technical way. And I, I, I've alluded to the fact that I'm kind of really interested in causal inference methods. Well, for a lot of people, that means, you know, fancy maths. Well, no, not for me. It means drawing diagrams. That's the bit of causal inference methods yeah. I like. Because again, like I'm not... I'm, yeah. yeah, exactly, DAX. <laughs> um, directed acyclic graphs. It's We just draw cartoons we, all day. That's what yeah, somebody do. said to me, you just draw cartoons. How many <laughs> DAG tattoos do you have? Uh, I, I'm not going to answer that question. Um, <laughs> I may never get invited on a podcast again. <laughs> um, but 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 actually, you know, for 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 understanding some of these peculiar phenomena, let's let you know we could talk for the whole hour about what's going on in the nutrition density model, and and still not really get get the uh, the message across. Um, but but when we start drawing it out. Um, you, it becomes much easier to see what's going on. And that's that's where my interest has co always come from this. And we've got some DAGs in this paper, which which also show, uh, hopefully, quite you know, to some people quite clearly, why you get very different answers when you're just for total versus remaining energy. You know, so, so one of the, the, the interests here was about um, when you bring causal inference methods to nutritional epidemiology, can you start to understand some of these, these peculiarities of the discipline that have been described before? You know, again, these four models that we talk about, there's literature all the way back to the 70s, no, I feel. 80s and okay. 90s. Well, a long time ago, where, where they've been discussed and they've been discussed very well, but clearly the message hasn't got yeah. through. Yeah, no, I think... Uh, as a student of nutrition, I never had like, a, and I wasn't nutrition epi, but I've never had a, a super formal class on this sort of stuff. But the paper really nicely lays it out in a conceptually easy way to understand and good discussions of collider bias and, and things like that in there too. Uh, one question I was curious, you guys talk a lot about macronutrients, but this always comes up in micronutrient nutrition literature as well of how do you adjust for energy intake and I think that there's there's probably fewer options, but have you considered that as well? Yeah, it's an interesting question, and we have we we've been asked this question a lot, and we've discussed it many times. And it, I mean, it's really complicated. But <laughs> um, well, the thing with my, micronutrients is that they obviously they don't add up to total energy, so you don't see right. the same compositional data issues so yeah these compositional data issues don't arise in the same way but the complexity comes from the fact that you can have something like iron and that's really strongly associated with certain macronutrients and types of macronutrients right so we haven't explored this formally but my understanding is that you actually risk 
having the same unintended substitutions if, for example, you know, you have iron or calcium, you know, all of these things that are so strongly associated with certain nutrients that you might as well be using them as proxies of them. Yeah. So actually adjusting for total energy in that situation might might induce unintended substitutions that you weren't, you yeah. know, and of course they'll be even more distorted because it won't yeah. be a, a, a clean substitution. Yeah. Um, it so, would be very unintended and it would probably, yeah... Let's you see whether P- Georgia has time in her PhD. I want to, to do uh... all of this, right? And like, I just don't, you know, I have a year and a half left. But this is one of the things that... That's what uh, for, I mean. <laughs> I know, right? Um, but yeah, this is one of the things that I am interested in exploring. Because it, it, it just... Yeah, I mean, it's, it's my plug as somebody who does more micronutrient work that, I mean, micronutrients are coming from food sources with calories. And I think people yeah. just yeah. kind of do the same thing where it's like, well, just just for total calories and that yeah. makes everything okay. And uh, it, it I think probably that's doesn't. that's particularly bad idea. I think that is actually the one <laughs> yeah. that's, 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 that's depending the on worst the mi- option. <laughs> depending on the micronutrient, yeah. really. Mm-hmm. But if, if it's one that's really strongly associated with a, a macronutrient of food or anything yeah. else, you are risking sort of the same issues with total energy that's going to be fun to simulate yeah I mean, that that's i mean it's funny because actually simulations you you have to work really really hard to make simple simulations that yeah. also describe the issue plausibly yeah because like obviously nutrition like simulating nutrition examples the whole nutritional and dietary data in general is not simple but if you actually include all of these complexities in the simulation, then it becomes so complex that it's not as easy to demonstrate it's anymore. It's not informative anymore. It's almost like you're just trying to do it with real data with all of the complexities that it has. So really, like, there's... Um, there's yeah. a dark art to it, like much yeah. of nutritional epidemiology in general. Because <laughs> yeah, it's not simple, but you have to make it simple enough so that, for example, you know... Don't, not, don't have confounding, yeah. measurement error, all of these things that make it simple to demonstrate, for example, specifically this methodological issue that you want to demonstrate. We have to remember that all of these things actually exist in the real world. But if you start simulating them, then, you know... The problems are still there because prob- the, yeah. the things you're trying to demonstrate are still there, but they start to get diluted by all yeah. of the other aspects of reality that whereas are at what, play. Whereas what you want is when you have a difference in the estimate in the simulation, you want to know that it's exactly, for example, the adjustment strategy that led to this difference in the estimate and not like residual confounding. Yeah. And this is what's tricky with simulations. Well, and so despite our conversation kind of bordering on nihilism and a little bit on this is really, really hard, <laughs> uh, the, the paper does kind of look favorably on one approach that you call the all components model that I think folks should dig in. But can you briefly just describe what that is and, and why we like it? Sure. So the all components model is basically the same as the energy partition model in that it, it uses adjustment for all components, dietary components that you have separately in the model. Um, however, we decided to give it a different name because we think of it as a general approach to analyzing compositional data 
And also because the energy partition model, when it's used in the literature, in nutrition in general, it's in the context of substitution models, which is not really, it's related, but it's not really the focus of the paper. And uh, so the all components what is the model, What is the unit on the nutrient of exposure in that, in the uh, all components model? Again, the, our, the one we present at this stage is calories. Yeah. So this okay. is, you know, we just in the whole paper is just calories except the ratio because that's right. automatically a percentage. Because again, we have extra complexities once you start moving into other yeah. domains, yeah. and we're trying to just demonstrate the lowest level issues at the moment. But but we're kind of keeping everything in the language of calories, just yeah. because when you translate to others, you will get more yeah. complexities. Yeah. So. Yeah, as I said, the all components model, you adjust for all of the other nutrients that you have. Yeah. And simple as that. The, yeah, that's it, the end. So the benefit of, uh, of this model is that you can actually use it to estimate both the total causal effect and the relative causal effect. And this is because if you just leave the model as it is, so the exposure and then all of the other components, what you've done is you've adjusted for all competing sources of energy. So for all other nutrients, right? And so this is, this gives you the total causal effect. But you can also use the weighted coefficients of the, all of the other variables to estimate the relative causal effect. And we don't really go into much detail um, on this in in this paper, but you can use it uh, for estimating more specific substitutions. You just, when you use the whole like weighted uh, coefficients, you can... Um, it's a very flexible yeah, model. It's very flexible. You can use specific coefficients to make more specific substitutions, but you still keeping all of these other nutrient variables there to really adjust for um at, or attempt to adjust for residual confounding shall in I, a much better way shall i try and shall i try and do the, the complex bit and say what what is it doing that the, <laughs> the other ones aren't doing so well um in in a, in a there's there's two issues really which we call this confounding you know unobserved confounding or residual confounding um, and there's this weird thing called composite variable bias. Um, and I'm going to, I'll have a try at explaining what's going on. So first of all, um, we'll deal with confounding, right? This is all that complex kind of backstory as to why people eat what they eat. Um, and it influences your diet in complex ways. This is the theory. Um, and so a model that adjusts for each component of your diet is going to cover that complexity better than if you just adjust for some average, like remaining energy. Um, so that's exactly what we see. We see that if you adjust for the average variable like remaining energy, it doesn't block, that's the this kind of technical terminology, it doesn't you know, uh, cut off that confounding as effectively as if you adjust for all the individual elements. The other thing that we find, um, which is another kind of weird statistical quirk, um, but it's it's been shown in many other settings in general, is as soon as you collapse information, so you go from, say, eight pieces of information, eight, about eight different components of the diet, into just one, then actually you no longer necessarily get a, a, a robust average 
of all the different components because you've lost information. You've just, you know, you've thrown away a lot when you take an average of everything else or a sum of everything else. And so this composite variable bias comes from the fact that you have taken lots of individual pieces of information and, um, and relied on one relied on to one capture to all capture of this. <laughs> yeah. So, so these, these simpler models, in a sense, that just take an average adjustment have, have thrown away a lot of useful information. So we just need really well-powered nutrition epi yes. studies. That's <laughs> so it, yeah, just, just for a million Nice things. infinite population. I, was yeah. like, <laughs> <laughs> I know there's probably some nutrition epidemiologists who are like really angry listening to this. Shouting them in their yes. perfect world data. <laughs> We're being, yeah. yeah, I mean, in a sense. Well, this is just, we've chosen an example where we've broken down carbs into the different types and fat into saturated and saturated and so on. So, um, it depends on first what data you have. Yeah. You know, you can go on and break down into, you know, atoms if you want, but obviously not no one's going to do that. And so I think it depends on the context again, how much do you need and want to break down the different nutrients? Because if you just use, say, protein, carbs, and fat, and in you, in, if in your context that's sufficient, yeah. that, that wouldn't require you know an infinite population. That's just three nutrient be, variables. But it would be adding. better than just the average. It, even though obviously different types of fat might have different effects on your outcome, whatever it is. And different types of carbs might have different effects on your outcome. Even if you just use protein, carbs, and fat and don't break them down further, that would still be better than having just all other energy as one variable. So in a perfect and ideal world, you would want to break down as much as possible. However, you cannot do it because it's not practical. So it depends on your context and how much information you would actually gain from breaking down the nutrients further. And in some scenarios, it will be fine to just have protein, carbs, and fat, and maybe alcohol. So separately. Spo spoiler alert, that's, that's why we don't give a definitive recommendation. That's why we don't say from now on, everyone should use this model. Yeah, because like we know in practice, it will always be a trade-off between like, uh, in a sense, uh, to use the the technical words, accuracy and precision. In other words, like like how close to the the the, the real answer do you get, versus how sure are you of yeah. the answer you get? You know, and it's it's and that's about sample size. Um, you know, in a huge in a huge study, you can really try and clamp down on all these variations sources more effectively but in a small study you'll have to take you know make trade-offs and we're sort of hoping again this this particular article being the aim being to sort of learn how to think about yeah you know to, research question justifying adjustment strategy and what will it what will your adjustment strategy yeah. mean for your results in your study and it's just about you know learning to think about it not, and not like, just doing yeah thinking, thinking, thinking and, really. and so hopefully if nothing else it'll be a bit of a platform to 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 get people to to think about those things when they're running their models yeah i think it's it's more of a case of showing that it's ideal that when you can when you're able to break it down you know, it's better, but we're not saying you should always, you know, break down and have like a hundred nutrient variables in your model. I, I, I bet you've done this. I mean, you're, you're, <laughs> you say you're not an epidemiologist. There's always that decision. 
you know, to how, how much should we categorize this variable? I would say you shouldn't categorize it ever. You know, you might, well, you know, they want it binary. Yeah, but, but sometimes the continuous <laughs> doesn't have the meaning that yeah. you want until you categorize. Yeah. So, so you, you would use, you would lose the information, but you have the trade off with like what you want, what, what is meaningful in yeah. practice. And so, so it's similar. Yeah. So, you know, conceptually similar yeah. sort of questions hopefully will then be raised in the future. Well, I think that is an, an awesome note to end on. We could talk about this for forever. I mean, my questions about, you know, the, how you incorporate, uh, I think some of the work that's been done, like the open study, for example, where they look at using 24 hour nitrogens alongside self-reported dietary protein and how to structure that. I think, you know, lots of this makes me think, okay, well, this is the perfect world setting, but what trade-offs come into play in the more real world data where you have all sorts of, um, well, an unknown true estimate and how do you best uh, as, what approach is best for estimating it. So I look forward to seeing more of your work come out with some of these simulations and then also hopefully some, uh, you know, big epi cohort data will also play around with this sort of work. It's it's very instructional for us readers and I think I'll be a smart, you're talking about for authors, I think I'll be a smarter peer reviewer and uh, asking folks to justify the, the energy great. adjustment mm-hmm. approach. That's great in <laughs> itself, you know. This is also why you don't ask non-epidemiologists to review epidemiology papers, <laughs> but nevertheless, it happens. Mm-hmm. Um, well, do you guys have anything you want to plug before we sign off apart from this paper? Are you doing any hirings or entering any job markets soon? Uh, no. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, no, no. Uh, I don't think I have not anything. Yet. No, no. Not no, yet. Not you know? yet. Okay. <laughs> um. But, well, we will um, put but, your uh, your Twitter bios and things oh, so yeah. folks can follow you on social media and, and yeah. wonk out more about Epi methods. Yeah, really, it, and it, and my Twitter really is a, a r- real range of extremely obscure technical information and then just general ranting. Um, <laughs> uh, occasionally, you know, more positive comments. Well, I'm not famous on Twitter. <laughs> Well, hopefully after this podcast, um, this will help network you more with uh, the global Nutrition Epi audience and your your Twitter will blow up. Yeah. Well, one could only dream. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time today and for coming on and congratulations on your your AJCN publication. And I I look forward to your next uh, next AJCN publication. Maybe we can have you on as a repeat offender. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for inviting us as well. Of course.